Well, I'd originally titled this message, uh, Sin's Fatal Diagnosis, but I, after studying it, um, I really think the, a better title is No Grounds for Mercy. No Grounds for Mercy. It's, it's, a very, it's very hypocritical for someone who has been forgiven much not to forgive, or for someone who has been loved much not to love, or for someone who has been given much to be stingy. And one of the root causes of hypocrisy is a lack of compassion um, for those in a similar plight, forgetting your own previous situation. And when someone lacks compassion, they're callous, indifferent, and unconcerned. Their lack of compassion may even result in animosity, hatred, and even hostility. Now, one of the magnificent attributes of God that I am going to try to put on display this morning through the scriptures is God's compassion, his compassion. After Ezra read the law of God to the Jews and they were restored to the land of Israel after their their years of captivity in Babylon, he, when he read the word, certain Levites helped in leading a, a national worship service in praise to God. And to start this morning, I want to turn our attention there. You can listen or follow along and be reading from Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Beginning at verse 15. So speaking to God in corporate prayer about God's compassionate care of the Israelites, despite all their years of disobedience, here's what the Levites declared to God. Again, I'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 15. Speaking to God, they said, You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them and for their thirst. And you told them to enter in it to you told them to enter in in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return their, to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Look down at verse uh, 26 if you're reading along with me. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs, and skill and killed your prophets who had admonished them, so that they might return to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. 
But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. You see the, the, the pattern. That's why I wanted to read several verses. You see the pattern that, the, that, that God reaches out to his people and they respond. They disobey. He sends warnings. They don't heed those. He turns them over to, to their oppressors. They call to him and he compassionately responds and rescues them. God's compassion causes him to commiserate and sympathize with sinners. He doesn't have to do that. God doesn't need anything from us, but his great love mixed with mercy and his compassion like, compel him of himself and nothing else to rescue people. What a, what a great God we have. You see, this, this compassion of God is so linked to his forgiveness. In Psalm 51.1, David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness." His confession of his great sin with Bathsheba and having murdered her husband, Uriah. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see, God's love sent the son. It's his compassion that leads him to forgive our transgressions. Now, that doesn't just describe God's actions towards Israel or Old Testament believers. That, descri that describes God's actions towards the church, towards you, towards me. Now, what does this discussion of God's compassion have to do with our study of Titus 3? We'll turn to Titus 3, and I will show you the connection. Titus chapter 3. In our previous lessons, we have looked at verses 1 and 2 on, on how we are to respond to those outside the church. How we are to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's not an easy order. That's a difficult order. But God wants to help us to do have this kind of action as we respond to those around us. When we get to verse 3, we're going to see that Paul provides a, a relatively short but poignant uh, reminder of our dark pre-Christ days. Why does Paul remind us of our pre-Christ Christian days, which were spiritually so dark? Well, this. The Apostle Paul wants us to remember the helpless dead condition that used to characterize our lives 
so that we'll be much more compassionate in how we respond to people who are still in that abhorrent condition. So this morning we're looking at Titus 3.3, a dark chapter in our history, in order to help us respond compassionately as ambassadors of our gracious and compassionate God to those outside the church. You see, one of the key characteristics of God is that He is a God of compassion. And we who know that compassion, how dare we not be also compassionate people with those who don't yet know God's compassion or may not ever know God's compassion. Well, let's uh, let's look at Titus 3. Let's read it together. And I'm going to begin at verse 1 and read through verse 7. But this morning we'll be looking at, at verse 3. Paul says to Titus, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we once also... For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look at verse 3. For we were also once, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Beloved, Paul is, is showing us what our lives were formerly like. Titus 3.3 3 is a reminder of, of seven abhorrent and, and disabilitating symptoms of being dead in sin that formerly, formerly characterized your life and my life. And these are given to us to help us to remember God's compassion towards us so that we might respond compassionately towards those outside the church. And, and really, I think the idea of responding compassionately nicely capsulizes the instructions we're given in verses 1 and, and 2. So let's look at these seven debilitating symptoms, these seven, seven characteristics of a very dark period of our lives. Well, the first is, Paul leads off with, we were formerly foolish. You were formerly foolish. Now the descriptions that are found in verse 3 are, are, are given to motivate our obedience as I, uh, as I mentioned. And, and we see that because verse 3 begins with the word for. It's connecting the instructions that just came in verses 1 and 2 with what he's going to tell us in verse 3. So verse 3 is kind of the theological foundation for the instructions given in verses 1 and 2. The descriptions that are found in verse 3 are accurate of all of us. Now, notice there, the Holy Spirit tells us that we also once were foolish. And he goes ourselves and lists those out. These seven um, debilitating symptoms, these seven dark characteristics of our, of our pre-Christ lives. Now, these, these uh, characteristics, it's not as if they just made an appearance and, and then were, were gone. He says we were also uh, once were foolish. And, and the tense of the verb given is, is indicating 
that these characteristics were an integral part of our lives. They, they were who we were. It's not as if they were an anomaly to who we were. No, these characteristics really typify and normalize who we were before Christ. Now, John Kitchen explains that, that the, the verb here that's used, that Paul uses here, shows that these characteristics were the continuous habit of life in which we lived before we came to faith in Christ. And I also want to point out that, that this, is, um, this applies to all Christians. And notice where Paul says, for we also once were foolish ourselves. Notice the we and ourselves. What's Paul doing? Paul's including himself. He's writing to Titus. He's, he's telling Titus to remind the Cretans of something, but he's also including himself in this, in this category. And this point's emphasized by his specific use of the pronoun ourselves. So there's uh, emphasis drawn to that. The point here is that if these things are true, even of the Apostle Paul, they're, they're true of every single one of us. They're, they're true uh, of all believers to one degree or another. Now, it's, it's important to see that, that while all of these characteristics were true of every single Christian, of every, every single person who is in Christ today, these things characterized your life. But you notice that we're all different. So the way that we carried out these particular characteristics, these particular sins, the way, the way these sins were manifest in our lives varied from individual to individual. It is the grace of God that we are all not as bad as we could be. Right? If, if you look at it from a biblical perspective, we all have the potential to be a Hitler. We have the potential to be a Mao. That potential is within us if we're in the pre-saved state, in that pre-Christ state. That's the kind of depravity that lies within us. But it's the grace of God that that is not manifested, that evil does not reach those depths in each one of our lives. So we're not as all as bad as we could be in how we acted out, but the core of our being is that bad. There's the potential for that. And what Paul is saying, really the Holy Spirit is saying, this is all of us, right? These descriptions are true. To, to one extent or another, all of these descriptions were true of every single believer, even the apostles, right? even the apostles. Remember that, that Paul was raised as a, as a very strict uh, Jew, right? As a Pharisee, right? Very strict. So he was very religious, but he still lumps himself in with all other believers and having these characteristics. Now, the other thing I wanted to point out here is that is that word once. For we also once were foolish ourselves. What is he doing? He's saying these things are our past. It's a dark past. We don't like to acknowledge it. We don't like to talk about it. But that's the past. These things are the former characteristics. They no longer characterize our lives. Uh, while believers may struggle with and, and sometimes fall into the s- sinful attitudes and actions that are listed here, they are no longer a, a, a part of the fabric of who you are. If, they, if any of these sins are a part of the fabric of who you are, then you're not truly saved at all. And, and this is similar to what the Apostle John teaches us in, in 1 John 3. I just want you to turn there just a minute. Keep a, a finger in Titus and turn to 1 John 3. 
just want to read this to you. 1 John 3, beginning at verse 4. 1 John 3, beginning at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So Paul, here John draws out the same thing Paul is mentioning in Titus, that when someone comes to know Christ, the things, the, the old practices of sin die, and there is a new pattern of righteousness. That doesn't mean you don't sin. In fact, John also says, if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. Right? We deceive ourselves. So we do sin, but the issue is the pattern. Pre-Christ, it's a continuous pattern. Right After coming to know Christ, these things no longer characterize in a, in a continuous steady state uh, in our lives. And our sins are broken by repentance, which was never true of, of us before we came to know Christ. So go back back to Titus. Titus is he, in Titus. We see that Paul is is pointing to the past, not to who we are now, but to our past. And what's his first description that he gives us? For we also once were foolish ourselves. The word foolish um, is um, is to be not understanding or to be unwise. To be foolish stands in opposition to being wise. You have these two ideas contrasted, wisdom and foolishness. The description of being foolish is something that no one cherishes. We all want to be wise, and indeed, all unbelievers think of themselves as wise. And yet what the unbelievers think uh, as, as wise is really foolishness. Now, Paul here in, in Titus 3.3 is, is not um, kind of beating down us on the on the intellectual uh, side. In fact, it's not a beatdown at all. He's just describing who we were. But the point here I wanted to make is he's not talking about mental intellect per se. There have been brilliant men who have invented many, many different kinds of things who were unbelievers. We're not talking about mental intellect uh, in and of itself. Paul is not using the word here foolish to to reference the intellect or the IQ. Um, As one commentator describes it, Paul is describing the type of foolishness that indicates one is without spiritual understanding. So it's not that you're without total understanding, it's that you're without spiritual understanding. This, This describes us. This is a foolishness that denies spiritual realities as God has revealed them. This is a foolishness of one's own making. The unbeliever is without true spiritual wisdom by birth and by choice. You see, that's so critical. Just as we're sinners by birth and by choice, here our foolishness, we are born foolish, but we also choose 
foolishness. This is the foolishness that denies God. Psalm 14 verse 1 and also repeated in Psalm 53 1 tells us that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. That's God's declaration of every atheist. Every atheist at, at, a, at, a, at a core is a fool, even if they consider themselves wise, even if they have the highest IQ as measured by scholastic standards. God has said the fool, the, 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 the one is a fool who says that God doesn't exist. This is the foolishness also that not only denies God's existence, but that suppresses truth. If you look with me for just a moment at Romans 1, passage we've referenced several times, but I think it's important to, to see this. So reference, uh, turn to, to Romans 1, and we see this foolishness again, beginning of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the dual penalty of their heir. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, they, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give. They also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's a that's a quite a description of the foolish heart. And to one extent or another, that describes each one of us. Now keep in mind, now, now Paul is not listing all these things just to do a, do a, a beat down, as, as it were, on, on the believers. There's a reason he's helping us to remember the, the, the theological darkness of our past. And that's to motivate us on how we respond to the unbelievers around us who are still in that state. Now, keep in mind, beloved, that this foolishness is speaking about a, a spiritual uh, lack of understanding. So just think about verses like 1 Corinthians 2.14. We're told that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And then in verses 6 and 8 in that same chapter, 
Paul says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So again, this kind of foolishness characterized us all. We had no ability to to understand the wisdom of God. You could say all Christians have this as our rich heritage. I use the word rich in scare quotes. It's not a rich heritage at all. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon describes us. We were foolish. We thought we knew, and therefore we did not learn. We said, we see, and therefore we were blind, and we would not come to Jesus for sight. We thought we knew better than our God. Our foolish heart was darkened, and we imagined ourselves to be better judges of what was good for us than the Lord our God. We refused heavenly warnings because we dreamed that sin was pleasant and profitable. We rejected divine truth because we did not care to be taught and disdained the lowly position of a disciple sitting at Jesus' feet. Our pride proved our folly. What lying things we tried to believe. We put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Darkness for light and light for darkness. In thought, desire, language, and action, we were once foolish. Remember that Jesus said it is not the healthy who need a physician, but the what? The sick. The sick. If if there was nothing wrong with us, if if we were if we had that wisdom in and of ourselves, well we wouldn't need a physician. But we do need a physician. We need a physician of the soul. And and here's here's the dilemma, even if we we're only given this. If a fool thinks he is wise, though he is a fool, he will never go in search of wisdom. He will die in his foolishness, for he thinks he's wise. It's just like the person who has who has cancer but doesn't realize it. They think they're perfectly healthy. They'll never seek out help. And they're going to die from their disease because they haven't sought out help. Now, this is, the only, this is only the first of the description that Paul provides. And yet I want you to see how hopeless this foolishness leaves its victims. If this is the only description, this would be enough to doom us. We would never come to Christ on our own. We, we would never want to come to Christ on our own. And we certainly could never make any kind of claim upon God that he was obligated to somehow save us because of our great wisdom. For all of our wisdom, quote unquote, was foolishness. Again, no grounds for mercy. There's no grounds here. In our past, there's nothing, there's nothing in our past that we could say, God, save us because of this. No, we were totally foolish. But but there's more than that. Let's move on to see the second description of our unsaved life. We were formerly disobedient. You were formerly disobedient. Paul clearly puts all of us in the category of being formerly disobedient. Foolishness leads to disobedience. These two are connected, as many of these descriptions are, as we'll see this morning. Since, since uh, when the fool thinks he is wise... He will see no need to obey the truth which God has revealed. And he suppresses that truth of God and thinks himself to be um, wise when, and he looks at the wisdom of God as foolishness. Now the Greek word that Paul uses here is related to words that refer to, to trust, confidence, persuasion, persuasive speech, and obey. 
So this word disobedient is the word I'm referring to. I just point this out because when we disobey God, ultimately it's because we do not trust God. We do not have confidence in God. And we are not persuaded by God who is telling us what to do and urging us to this obedience. The one who is disobedient is unconvinced to do the thing that is being commanded or urged. As one pastor explained, this this word disobedience denotes intentional and obstinate refusal to believe, acknowledge, or obey. It's just not referring to the outward actions of obedience, but really is getting to the heart of it. We don't want to obey. We don't want to listen. We don't trust God. This disobedience is ultimately aimed against God's authority, but it can be manifested in various ways against any human-level authority, like governing officials, parents, or employers. Disobedience is a fair characterization of unbelievers. When I say fair, I mean it's, it's a right designation. Uh, just, just listen to some of these passages uh, as a, that will cross-reference as an example. Titus, in Titus 1.16, you can look there since you're in Titus, where uh, in describing those who go astray, false teachers, and those who reject the truth, they say they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. So the, the same word disobedient, this is, it's, it's linked here. This, this is not um, the, the wayward Christian. Right? This is the person whose very um, compass is aimed at disobedience. This it falls in the same category as being detestable, worthless for any good deed. It's, again, these are the description of those who deny him our pre-Christ state. Uh, Listen to Paul's description in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That, That term, sons of disobedience, who's he talking about? He's talking about people who have rejected Christ or haven't yet come to know Christ. So he's dividing everybody Everybody into two categories. They're sons of righteousness and sons of disobedience in in that context. Sons of God, sons of Satan. It's another way to put it. Ephesians 5, 6, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So the sons of disobedience will receive the wrath of God. That's not the Christian today, but that is our past. We were sons of disobedience. We were in that family. We were in that kingdom and God rescued us and pulled us out of that kingdom. But that's our heritage. That's who we used to be. We were formerly disobedient. And can the disobedient ever become obedient? Well, in our, in our, in our culture, in our society and lives, we know the answer is yes, but that's only because of God's common grace. Ultimately, the theological answer is no. Can can the disobedient and the sons of disobedience change their character so that they are something other than the sons of disobedience? The answer is no, because that would require wisdom. But they they reject wisdom because they consider that God's wisdom to be foolishness. So they will never come to obedience on their own. Were we ever able to claim? Uh, would we be ever able to claim that God should save us because of our obedience? Now, remember, I'm not saying that we disobeyed as much as we potentially could have. I'm not saying that. Scripture doesn't say that. But understand, 
that even a small amount of obedience doesn't change the character of who we were, which is why works will never save anyone. It doesn't change our character. God's not impressed with our actions. He wants to change us at a very at the very core of our being. We are hopelessly pre-Christ. We were hopelessly lost in sin, being stubbornly foolish and obstinately disobedient. But Paul adds a third description to that. What does he say? To to being foolish, to being disobedient, he adds deceived. You were formerly deceived. Now think about what he's saying there. You deceived. To deceive means to, to lead astray. That we were deceived means that we were led astray. Who led us astray? Well, I think there's three answers to that. Paul doesn't provide the answer. But I think looking at the, at the larger context of Scripture, the answer to the question, who led us astray, is threefold. First, we led ourselves astray. right? And that's the primary takeaway from this. That's how hopeless our situation was. We lead ourselves astray pre-Christ in our pre-Christian state. We seek after our own desires. We seek after teachers that tickle our ears and tell us things we want to hear. This is one reason that false teachers have such a large following. Even some of them claiming to be churches, quote-unquote, have massive, huge followings that have nothing to do with Christ at all. So people are, are deceived by false teachers, but they're mainly deceived by their own desires. They're listening to things they want to hear, which is why they're so susceptible to false teachers. So we're led astray by our, uh, we lead, lead ourselves astray. The world also leads us astray. So the world is trying to press us into their mold to conform us to their way of thinking and living. And then the devil leads us astray. Second Corinthians four, verses three to four, Paul tells us this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the, of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world, lower G, that's Satan. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And he, he, along with that, we could lump in the false teachers who work in, in uh, conjunction with him. Uh, speaking about false uh, teachers and false apostles in Second Corinthians eleven thirteen, Paul says, "For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds." And then we could add to that a passage like Revelation twelve nine, which speaks about the great dragon tells us the great dragon, looking to the future, the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So the Lord promises judgment upon the great deceiver. But in this time now, he is in that work of deceiving. So the fact that we're, that we're led astray, that's one of the descriptions of us. We we were deceived. Does that let us off the hook? Can we say, well, we didn't? Can we, can we claim a little ignorance here and say, well, we didn't didn't really know? No, we can't. Uh, for the idea presented in Scripture is that we willingly went along with the deception, which is why I mentioned one of the 
one of the major uh, culprits in leading us away is ourselves. We follow our own desires, our own lusts, as we'll see in a moment. As D. Edmund Hebert notes, deceived here, the word deceived pictures an active strain from the true course by following false guides. Our hearts want to listen to those false guides, and so we follow, we willingly follow them. Before Christ, we are like sheep who go willfully on their own way and willfully follow other sheep who are going their own way. It's like being uh, uh, doubly blind. And thus with this description of being deceived, we see another angle of just what a hopeless condition we were in pre-Christ, before we were saved. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived. And now the fourth thing you'll see, we were formerly enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. All of us were enslaved to our lust and pleasures. Just just like people, um, just as people like to fathom that they are wise when they are foolish, people who are enslaved like to fathom themselves as free. But realize when people think of themselves as free to make a choice, if they are not saved, that's a lie. Scripture says that unbelievers are enslaved. We were enslaved to, to our lust and passions before Christ. And Paul uses a, the word, the verb re, related to the word doulos. Doulos means slave. Well, this is the verb related to that. We're enslaved. This is the word. We're enslaved by our lust and our uh, desires, our pleasures. Paul is, is using the word here this, uh, in a, a negative connotation. So he wants us to, to, to not miss this. Make no mistake about it. We were not born free men. We were born in slavery. And what were we enslaved to? Lust of various kinds. He mentions two things. Lust of various kinds. And, and they're um, also pleasures of various kinds. Okay. These various lusts, various pleasures. The word lust is a translation of the Greek word epithumia, which, which can be a, a, a non-sinful or neutral desire. It's not always used in a, in a sinful sense. But obviously in this context, Paul is using it in a sinful sense. That's why it's rightly translated lust. A sinful lust is a great desire for something that God prohibits or finds detestable. Uh, one, one commentator one commentator describes uh, this word lust um, and, and how, it, how lust desires uh, to become master of our lives this way. He says desires can find their expression in every direction. Sexual lust, material enjoyment, coveting another's possessions. By directing our attention, they can bring us completely under their domination. The recognition expressed in Romans 6, that those who allow themselves to be driven by their desires are already under the reign of sin, occurs frequently in Paul's writings. Desires are deceitful and can enslave us. When that happens, the heart, that is the center of one's whole personality, comes under their control. As a result, all decisions of the will and even the best and highest impulses and powers of a person are determined by these desires. Think about that. When we, when we are enslaved by our lust, all the decisions of the will and even the best and highest impulses and powers of a person are determined by these desires. 
And if that's not bad enough, Paul mentions another master that enslaves us, and that is our pleasures. Pleasures of various kind. The word pleasure here is is the uh, the word from which we get the word hedonist from. This is a, a pleasure-seeking uh, person. That, again, this is describing who we all, who we were. All unbelievers are hedonists at heart. That is, they love pleasure. And the kind of pleasure that, that we once loved is an offense to God. And, and uh, even, even these pleasures even can take the place of God in our lives. In describing the unbeliever in 2 Timothy 3, 4, Paul says that they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You see how they're opposed? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So the Holy Spirit puts these two things in opposition to one another. You can't be a lover of pleasure and a lover of God. It, just like you can't be a lover of money and a lover of God. These things are opposed to one another. You must pick one or the other. You cannot love both. And because unbelievers are enslaved to pleasure, they will always pick to love pleasure. We would never have picked to love God over pleasure. And, and notice the, the word various, which we can say various kinds. This is modifying both our desires and our pleasures that enslave us. To say that, that it, it, it's just talking about the various kinds of things. Um, it, this just means that there are an asundry of sinful pleasures and desires that enslave each one of us. What enslaves one man uh, won't enslave another. And what enslaves a man will vary from man to man and woman to woman. The things that enslave me as an unbeliever are likely different from the things that enslaved you as an unbeliever. And, and there are certainly common categories, but the specific desires and pleasures that enslave unbelievers are as varied as people themselves, as varied as we are. Again, I want you to listen to Charles Spurgeon here and the warning that he gives. The apostle says that we were enslaved to various desires and pleasures. These masters are many, and they are all tyrants. Some are ruled by greed for money. Others crave for fame. Some are enslaved by lust for power. Others by the lust of the eye, and many by the lust of the flesh. We were born slaves, and we live slaves until the great liberator emancipates us. No man can be in worse bondage than to be enslaved by his own evil desires. We talk about the word that's enslaved. Enslaved, enslaved. Who enslaved you? Well, again, like these other words, this is both uh, being born into slavery and choosing to be enslaved. Because after all, these are your desires these are your pleasures you are choosing them you volunteered for your enslavement you didn't know that did you but you did the very things you and i thought would bring us satisfaction actually enslave us these lusts and desires that we think will make us so happy actually end up ruling us and being cruel taskmasters this is like the person who chooses to use drugs in order to uh, have a pleasurable high, only to find out he's no longer the one in control. The drugs are now controlling him. He can't say no. Right? I will interject and say that except Christ, he can't say no. And we see this all around us, in uh, especially here in Ohio, with you know drug overdoses, drug use. 
you know, I think, I don't know if we're still leading the nation in drug overdose deaths, but I, I, I don't think that's changed. Right? People don't start out to, to say, I think I'll kill myself by using too much drugs. Right? So the, this is something that becomes a, a, a destructive taskmaster. So obviously Paul's not um, pulling any punches here in, in this regard in a description. He is telling us things exactly like they were. And since we were once enslaved, we had, no, we had no ability to free ourselves. How do you free yourselves from lust and pleasures? Can you change your heart? No, you can't change your heart. And so again, by looking at this word, we again see how hopeless our situation was before Christ. Again, we could cry out and say, no grounds for mercy. Looking at this aspect of our lives, there's no grounds for mercy. There's no there's nothing in our lives that we could go to say God and say, God, could you, because of this, because of this aspect of my life, could you please find, be merciful to me, a sinner? Oh, you would never do that in our own way anyway, in our, of our own accord anyway. But again, that's not all. That's not the end of the description. Again, look at verse three. He says, not only enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, but fifthly, you were formerly spending your life in malice and envy. Formerly spending your life in malice and envy. The word spending your life is just living. This this characterized your life. It, this, to say you spent your life with something means that, that something dominated your life. It is a life-dominating activity and attitude. It indicates your normal pattern or manner of life. And how does Paul tell us we lived? In malice. Malice is ill will. Or the desire to injure. Malice wants to do evil to someone. Malice is the opposite of tender-hearted kindness. Malice is often lifted with uh, other vices in the New Testament when it, when it is listed, such as it is here with envy. And we not only lived in malice, we lived in envy. Envy is wanting what someone else has, whether that is a relationship, whether it's respect, honor, position, or a uh, uh, something physical. Envy is a deed of the flesh, as it's listed in Galatians 5.21. No doubt malice is also a deed of the flesh, although it's not specifically mentioned. That list of the deeds of the flesh is not a comprehensive list. And so we, we can safely say that malice is also a deed of the flesh. Envy and malice actually go together like hand and glove. In malice, we want to give evil to someone. In envy, we want to take good away from someone. Malice and envy characterize the lives of unbelievers, all of us. And these add to our utterly lost condition that we were formerly lost in. And yet that's not it. There's a sixth and, and seventh description. I'm going to handle these together because they're so similarly related. You see at the end of verse 3, hateful, hating one another. You were formerly hateful and hating one another. Now, the word hateful is a Greek adjective that's used to, to, to describe um, an, an ad, your attitude. And, and the hating one another is more of the, the, more of the action. Now, there's two ways of seeing this particular adjective in a passive sense and an active sense. And it's hard to know which way that, the, that, that this was intended because this is the only place in the New Testament where this particular adjective is, is used. So we can't look to other other uh, verses to try to get some help there. So the, the active sense of this adjective, which is how the New American Standard Bible translated, is the word hateful. And you were hateful. 
There is a passive sense of this adjective, which is how the Legacy Standard Bible translates it, and that is in, in their translation is despicable. You are despicable. Um, some translations use the word hated. You, you were hated, again, in the passive sense. And the translations, faithful translations, are about split as our commentators on, on the sense here. I, I tend to lean to the more active sense because everything else in this particular list is active. So I, I think that makes more sense, but again, it's something we, we can just, an uh, interpretation we hold with an open hand because of a little bit of uncertainty there. But what's, what's not open to question, or, or we could say what's, what is clear from the text is that we were hateful, or being hated by others. We were despicable, depending on which way you want to point it. It's not a good thing. Here again, Paul is showing, showing us the, the helpless state that we were once in. If the word means hateful, then it's pointing to our attitude of hating God and hating others. And note how this is related to malice and envy. Um, and so many of these sins feed into one another. If the word means despicable or hated by others, it is pointing to how much we are hated by other people and, and maybe even hated by God because of our sins. And you might say, well, God... God doesn't hate the sinner, he only hates sins. Well, you need to understand that, that, that God judges the sinner because he sins. So there are scriptures that tell us that God hates the sinner, and yet his compassion causes him to love or even to die for those. Right? So this is, a, a, again, a, a, a profound mystery that's presented to us in the scriptures. The word um, hateful here is different from the one that comes next, which is hating one another, but it's conceptually related to it. I just want to point out it's a, it's a slightly different word. That we were formerly hating one another. And this is the, the standard word for hating or detesting one another. When you hate another, you have a strong aversion to them. Hate stands op in opposition to love. You can't hate and love, right? Those two can't be together. And it's not difficult to see that the world around us is full of hatred toward one another. The only reason that there's any love is because of God reaching into our world and initiating love. Again, looking at First uh, John, First John 2, verses 9 to 11 tell us that the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The uh, ancient church father uh, Christosom uh, concluded that being hateful and hating one another is what must necessarily happen when we let loose every pleasure on the soul, referencing the lusts and the pleasures that enslave us. D. Edmund Hebert concludes that hating one another marks the climax in the active operation of mutual antagonisms that hasten the dissolution of the bonds of human society. It's what's, what's ripped societies apart, and it's what ripping our society apart right now. Right? And the Black Lives Matter, the CRT movement, uh, uh, claims it's dealing with uh, uh, racism, claims that it's dealing as something that's beneficial to society, when in fact it is actually harmful to society. It is encouraging hateful uh, attitudes and it is encouraging us to hate one another 
simply because of the amount of melanin in one's skin. These things are contrary to how God would have us to live. So there you have them. Seven abhorrent and debilitating symptoms that mark their lives as unbelievers. Again, here's, here's what I want you to see. Look from verse 3 for a moment, but verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5 in another sermon, but I cannot teach verse 3 in isolation from verse the verses that follow it. Right? You must see your desperate condition before Christ to help you to see that you absolutely had nothing to offer God. Nothing. Nothing by works. Nothing by character. You had no grounds to demand God's mercy. You had no grounds to earn God's mercy. But it's simply because of His kindness that He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Not at all. We want to exalt God's compassion because without it, we would be utterly lost. If, if, if He saved us, and the reason is this, if He saved us despite our unworthiness, despite everything against us, our actions and attitudes, everything we had stacked against us, if God's compassion reached us, how how can we fail to respond compassionately to the world around us, despite their unworthiness? Yes, they're foolish. Yes, they're disobedient. Yes, they're hateful. Yes, they're hating. Yes, they're driven by their, their lust and their pleasures. We must be people of compassion because we are connected to the God of compassion. We must see this. This is very similar, and this is going to lead us. Uh, it's a great passage to preach prior to communion. But I want to turn your attention to a well-known passage, but Ephesians 2. I referenced one verse before, but I want you to turn to Ephesians 2. I'm going to read it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Again, Paul, in that text, us also including himself, and he puts the word all in there. Saying it includes everybody. There's not an exception. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, isn't that a great verse 4 of Ephesians 2, verse 4 of Titus 3? But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in the in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God wants to use you, 
And you could say this, he saved you so that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Surpassing riches of his grace. So if you're looking at your past wrongly, you think, oh, I wasn't so bad. God didn't have to do a lot of work to, to save me. Well, as you look at your, your past, especially if you're raised in a Christian home, right? yeah, you, you don't have a lot of outward despicable sins that maybe others have, but you need to see at the core, all these attitudes are within you or were within you if you're, if, if you're saved today. So you can thank God that that through his through his grace of giving you godly parents, you're not guilty of all the the uh, despicable sins that you could have been guilty had he not done that. But but understand that he still wants to use you as a trophy of his grace, of his kindness to show the just how marvelously, how rich his riches of, of his grace, the riches of his grace in kindness. How how great is his compassion? And and how should we respond? Turn to another passage in First Peter. We'll wrap up with, with this, but first Peter, I want you to see this. First Peter two. You are an ambassador of God's compassion. You're an ambassador of Christ who is an ambassador of God's compassion. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. The people won't like the truth that we hold to. We have to be people of truth, but we also be people of grace so that as we stand for truth, we do so with compassion for those who are uh, who are blinded, who are enslaved, who are disobedient, um, who cannot see the light of the gospel unless God pours out his abundant grace upon them, regenerates them by faith and helps them to see. What a great God that we have that, that would reach out and, and save you, save me. I mean, we could just sit back and say, why, why me, Lord? We have nothing in ourselves to demand God's compassion. Nothing in ourselves to earn God's compassion. We could just look at a verse like Titus 3, 3, and just say, wow, God, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Because ere by the grace of God, by the compassion of God, I'd still be there. I, I, it's an inescapable pit. Without God's mercy, we're all doomed. But those who are in Christ have found God's mercy or have been found by God's mercy. And if you're here this morning and, and don't know whether or not you are in Christ, 
know that his words are true when he says that to everyone who believes in him, that he gives eternal life. He gives forgiveness of sins. We're talking about belief. We're talking about trust. Trusting in him for your righteousness. Trusting in him for your forgiveness, for, for forgiveness of your sins. Trusting in him that he is he has propitiated God's wrath. Believe in him and you too will know the compassion and mercy of God. Let's pray together. Oh God, what what can we say to these things? But you are so merciful. You're so compassionate. Your compassion is great. Just as we as we read about the Israelites' repeated disobedience, and yet you are compassionate. Your compassion didn't fail. Your compassion came through. Your mercy resulted in in salvation for many. So too we can see that in our own lives. That we did not earn, Lord, your standing with you. We were all sons of disobedience. And you chose us out of the darkness and brought us into the light into the kingdom of your beloved Son, so that we might be sons of God, sons and daughters of God, walking in righteousness. Oh God, we just ask for your help to be obedient to your word, that that we would malign no one, that we would be uh, um, submissive and obedient to the governing authorities, to those authorities you have placed over us, that we would be ready for every good work, and that we would pursue, Lord God, just responding with compassion to everyone around us. And even when we're standing fastly for truth, that we would do so with compassion, that we would do so with mercy as ambassadors of Christ. Please, Lord, empower us. We, we will fail on our own. We need your Spirit to, to guide us and strengthen us and to help us to respond uh, in a God-like manner. So please help us. We just want to praise and exalt you. Thank you, Lord, for your great, rich mercy and compassion. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church, all rights reserved.